This podcast is made possible by members and donors to the show. To find out more, visit the support tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com. We also keep the show going thanks to our relationships with community partners, such as Joel DeFore and the great people at Earth Tools. If you're a small-scale professional farmer or permaculture practitioner, you'll love their line of walk-behind tractors, implements, and parts from manufacturers like BCS and Grillo. If you're a gardener, check out their full line of high-quality hand tools, including hoes, shovels, and spades. I chose to partner with Earth Tools because they are owned and operated by a small-scale farmer and his family. With their hands-on experience and understanding of the tools we need on our farm and in our gardens, they make high-quality tools accessible to everyone. Find out more at earthtools.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. You're listening to episode 1706. B Corporations, Business as a Force for Good. How do we engage in the world in a positive way? How do we do that with business? Today, David Bilbury of EcoThinkIt.com returns to the host's chair to talk with Brian Welch, the CEO of Be The Change Media, to examine these questions. Brian founded Be The Change Media in 2015 to look at how businesses, particularly B Corporations, work to bring about social good for their communities, for their organizations, and for the people who work there. Brian is a rancher and entrepreneur who, for 19 years, ran Ogden Publications, the owner of Mother Earth News, Mother Earth Living, Grit, and several other category-leading media companies focused on sustainability, natural health, and rural living. Brian is the recipient of numerous awards, including Niche Media's 2014 Niche Rockstar of the Year, and was honored with the B Corporation 2014 How Tossig Award for using business as a force for good. Now then, on to David and Brian. I'll join you again afterwards. Thanks for being here, Brian. How you doing? Thank you, David. I'm fine. Thank you. So uh, to start out today, I just wanted to hear a little bit about your origin story and how you came to uh, work in the, the meaningful field that you've ended up in. I grew up in uh, an impoverished area in southern New Mexico on the Mexican border. And it just so happened that the fellow who owned the trailer park uh, next door had a bunch of milk goats and chickens and a big garden and was living a very self-reliant lifestyle here in the midst of his trailer park in the Chihuahuan Desert. And I was fascinated with the animals and took to hanging out over there at his place. And he eventually put me to work when I was about eight years old, milking the milk goats and taking them out in the desert to graze during the day. And so I, I'm probably one of the last of the true goat herds out there, at least as far as North America goes. But I fell in love with it. I would take these, this little flock of goats out in the desert during the daytime, and they would eat bunch grass and mesquite beans and just the sparsest vegetation you could imagine. And then I would bring them in, and they would give this rich, creamy milk that sustained my family and a bunch of other families. It seemed like magic to me. And I think my core motivation over the course of these decades probably had its origins in that experience. I wanted to be involved in that kind of magic forever. And I wanted to be engaged with the process of making food. And I loved living close to animals. And one of the things that is inherent to the experience of raising animals for food 
if you're a normal aware person is you know you learn that it's a cooperative relationship and you learn that your care for those animals is intrinsic to good outcomes and so you know by the time i was a teenager and becoming aware of what in, of the way that food was created industrially i think it just struck me one day as a teenager that it was completely unnecessary to be uh, to treat animals in an inhumane way to squander natural resources it was unnecessary to do that and i had a very early education on how to do it in another way and i wanted to stay engaged with that you know emotionally fundamentally because it still felt like and still feels today like magic and that's a, a great thing to engage with every day and then um, also of course because i wanted to play some part in making the world a better place, which I think is something all of us feel. I think every human being would like to leave the world a better place than they encountered it. And given the opportunity, which I very fortunately had, they dedicate their work to that. And I had the chance to do that first as a newspaper reporter, as a newspaper publisher, and later in the broader media business. Okay. So uh, did you always know you wanted to be in publishing or how did, how did that uh, direction open up for you? I knew I had a natural fascination with storytelling. I was very close to one of my grandfathers who was an inveterate storyteller. And I don't know whether it's genetic or if I learned it from him. But the process of storytelling has always held a special fascination for me. And so in college, I worked at the college newspaper and loved that experience, which led me to the newspaper business and eventually to the, to the media business. So storytelling is sort of in your family bloodline, if you will. I guess so. I mean, he certainly loved to tell a story, and I love to tell a story, and I may have learned it from him. As far as your college education, were you were you direct pointed in this direction, or did you did you have that much clarity at that point? Yeah, I, was, I I I can't recall whether I would have identified myself as focused on storytelling, <laughs> but I was a creative writing major, so I guess that's sort of an absurd answer. Yes, um, I <laughs> studied storytelling in college. So, how did your I guess your life mission really is, you know, creating this better world and um, helping others to understand what's important about sustainability and regenerative systems. How do you see your role in that in the last 20 years? It's interesting. I personally don't think that I need to convince anyone of anything. I think the vast majority of human beings, whether they admit it or not, understand that we are extremely fortunate to experience life and to be accommodated by a rich, hospitable, natural environment the way we are. And most of the people I knew, I know naturally love living things. People love nature. And it's our inclination from birth to do so. And so... I probably wouldn't characterize my work as convincing anybody that it's important. Mm -hmm. I think of my work more as having been engaged with 
showing people how to engage with the world in a positive way and hopefully answering some of the questions they are already asking about engaging with the world in a positive way through food, through business, or whatever. As a storyteller, one of the things that, well, a touchstone for me philosophically is that you can't convince anyone of anything, but everyone has questions in their mind, in their subconscious, about life. And they don't always voice those questions out loud, but when they encounter an answer, it's deeply gratifying to them. And so I, I guess, sounds rather abstract, but I, I think I fundamentally feel that my vocation is understand, you know, is telling people, is answering people's questions, perhaps even before they know that they have them. I really like that because it's true. I, I can think of different times in my life where I didn't know what the question was, but I came, well, for instance, when I first was introduced to permaculture, I mean, it resonated so deeply in me because there was many questions I can identify now that were deep uh, inside. And so that solution appeared and all of a sudden, yeah, there was this really deep resonance. So part of your understanding of good storytelling is to help people uncover those questions by presenting uh, creative solutions. Would that be accurate? Yes, sure. And I think ha we have to meet them where they are, you know, these audiences. We have to study their natures and study their dilemmas and come up with answers for their questions with the audience as our top priority, I think. My experience at Mother Earth News was fascinating. We, you know, in the early 2000s, we had these new tools for the first time, which allowed us to watch how people read our work. And so we could see how long they stayed in on a page, how likely they were to scroll down, how likely they were to click to a second page or a third page, how likely they were to buy a related book from us. And that new information allowed us to start adapting our content to the audience's desires in a way that that in the print media we had not previously had the ability you know we had, we guessed a lot in the old days about what people wanted and with the digital the advent of the digital media we could see what people were telling us they wanted so we followed those people and after about 10 years of doing that we received a new study from a syndicated research agency that works for the advertising industry and one of the data points in that study in 2013 asked our readers whether they considered themselves very conservative, somewhat conservative, neutral, somewhat liberal, or very liberal. And to no one's surprise, our readers were twice as likely as the average American to say they were very liberal politically. But to everyone's surprise, they were also twice as likely than the average American to say they were very conservative politically. Furthermore, because there are many more people who identify as very conservative in the country, whereas about 9% of our readers were very liberal, over 20% of our readers were very conservative politically by their own definition. We were astonished to find that and so studied how that could have occurred because virtually no one on the staff would have, would have described themselves as any kind of conservative. And we realized that what the data had been teaching us to do is to take the tribal orientation, the, the, the deep 
political cultural orientation of our language out of our work. It, uh, the data taught us to put solutions that you could implement on your own at the top of stories about big sustainability dilemmas. So if we wrote about climate change, which we did frequently, we gave people up high in those stories alternatives for how to lower their own impact on climate change by driving an electric car or growing a garden or putting so photovoltaics on their home. If we did a story about any of the big obstacles to sustainability, we made sure that we were offering solutions because that's what the readers taught us to do. And in retrospect, what we believe happened was that the data showed us how to appeal to a huge audience of deeply conservative people who cared very much about the environment and about uh, sustaining a healthy habitat for future generations. And we grew over that decade faster than any other large magazine in North America. And I believe that growth can be attributed to our discovery that we could unify an audience around sustainability by changing our vernacular and changing the way we presented those stories. And for me, that was an epiphany, I guess. And then I, I think it also reinforced something that I knew down deep. I've lived most of my life around people who would describe themselves as very conservative. And I've always understood them to be deeply concerned about improving the world. And so by happy accident, we discovered this big audience and unified people around this idea. And I'm probably as proud of that or more proud of that than anything else that's happened in my career. So what year did you guys start taking you know taking it digital and getting all of this new data the early 2000s 2000 mm -hmm. 2000 2001 something like that yeah. it's interesting so so digital technology gave you the ability to listen in a new way that's right and uh was incredibly valuable huh we could talk for hours just on that that piece of uh, alone that's really that's really insightful uh you know scott and i with the permaculture podcast are you know always thinking about how can we communicate these ideas, help people to get the, first of all, the paradigm shift and then tools and understandings on how to move forward. And so that's, that's really good. So you were how many years with uh, Mother Earth News? Let's see. Um, I ran Mother Earth News for 15 years. It was part of a lot of a company that had about a dozen media brands. And I ran the company for 19 years and about four years into my time at the company, we acquired Mother Earth News. And so now uh, you've transitioned to something new. If it's something you want to talk about, why did you leave Mother Earth News? And then tell me about what you're doing now. Well, I think we all benefit from changing what we do once in a while. And it felt like that sort of time for me. I am very excited about business, using business to do good in the world. I think business is the most powerful organizer of human energy in the world. And utilizing that power to change the world for the better is an irresistibly potent idea, I think. And so, you know, my main motivation to do this new thing is my enthusiasm for what we might achieve. Tell me more about business being a powerful organizer of human energy. Well, <laughs> if you just count the uh, quantity of human effort, engagement, energy 
that's funneled by any particular human creation. Business is orders of magnitude bigger and more effective than religion, than athletics, than the military, than politics. It's orders of magnitude larger than any other organizer of human energy and does more in the world, changes the world in more profound ways than any of those other points of engagement. And so, you know, from my perspective, it's kind of obvious. You know, you think about worldwide, how many hours a week do people spend either praying or going to church? Compare that to how many hours they spend working in a business worldwide. Vast difference. Mm -hmm. Much more time, orders of magnitude more time uh, applied to business. You count the number of people who are engaged in politics and compare it to the number of people engaged in business. Business is orders of magnitude larger. Do the same comparison with the military. And again, business is orders of magnitude larger. It is uh, simply the primary engagement of our species. And the fact that we haven't focused business on doing good in the world is sort of surprising, I think. And the potential uh, for doing that is enormous. Why do you think it is this way? And why, why do you think it, business got so lost, if you will? Well, business is really young. You know, yeah, it's the, it's the main thing we all, that most of us do, but it's only, as we define it today, about 300 years old. And like a lot of adolescents, it's been uh, preoccupied with selfish desire and there's been a, desire, a, a, a an impulse on the part of people who practice business to simplify its philosophy, you know. And so you have these business philosophers whose idea of the, the, the lazy fair economy or the invisible hand or whatever you want to call it, Adam Smith, uh, mm -hmm. the most prominent example, who claim that the only effective way of practicing business is by being motivated by personal gain. I think it answers a simple-minded desire on the part of people who practice business to do it for purely selfish reasons. And they haven't been called to account yet, I think, because business is new. And it's, you know, the scale of global industry has been growing exponentially for 300 years, and nobody's taken the time to question the outcomes in much detail. And so I really think it's a matter of maturing. I think we're just sort of getting our heads around what business is and how it should be practiced. I think we're just sort of growing up as a species that practices business. So, you know, I'm not disappointed in us, but I think it's high time that we uh, bring our values to bear in the ways that we practice business. That's such a, that's a unique perspective. I haven't heard it put that way. It's not that business is stupid. It's just young. It's adolescent. <laughs> that's my idea. That's what, that's what I feel about it. Right. So how I hadn't thought about business only being 300 years old. Obviously, people have been working ever since the beginning of time. So how would you define business as you're, as you're stating it as being, what's the difference between that and whatever it was 300 years, before 300 years ago? It was predominantly agrarian. 
before the idea of the industrial economy was invented. And I can tell from tell you from personal experience that, you know, the daily endeavor of creating your own food and perhaps some additional food that you can sell to people you know is philosophically a very different endeavor that, than going to a factory mm-hmm. and working at a machine that, can, that creates industrial goods. Fixing shoes for your neighbors, even making shoes for your neighbors, is a very different philosophical enterprise than working in a shoe factory. And most of the value system that we apply in the practice of business today is fundamentally industrial and long ago left behind the notion that you make a good shoe because you want your friends and neighbors to have healthy feet, you know. That kind of direct connection between the industrial endeavor and the, the ultimate benefit. Those, they're very separate in the industrial workers' experience, which before the invention of uh, the industrial economy was not the case. So my notion of it is that gradually, over the last 400 years or so, our societies have been converted from societies in which most people grew food into societies in which most people go to an office or a factory. The vast majority of people go to an office or a factory. And I think that experience calls on, you know, requires or compels us to create new philosophies for what it means to lead a fulfilling human life. So, you know, the the point you were making about the amount of time people spend at work versus any other thing in their lives, it is it is striking. And unfortunately, many, most of the stories and many of the people we know aren't all that happy with what they're doing <laughs> with all of that time. So uh, what are some of the ways that we can grow into maturity as business in ways that make that... Um, make that time more meaningful, more fulfilling, or fulfilling more purposes in the context of those eight hours or, you know, longer a day that people are spending? Yeah, well, I don't think it's very complicated, really. You know, years ago, I was in the lunchroom at a business, at a company I ran, and I asked somebody, are you enjoying your work? And the person said, yeah, for the most part, but it's really hard to get to my child's daycare on time in the evening and pick them up and it's making the daycare provider who I really love quite frustrated with me and I find myself worrying about it all day long and it's just really it's and there was just an off-the-cuff response to a sort of routine question and I thought well there's probably no reason you know does the daycare open earlier and she said yes they do I said there's probably no reason you couldn't work an earlier schedule to make it easier for you to pick up the kid. Let's talk about it. Let's see if we can do that. And I went back to my office and sat down and thought, well, I should ask people that question all the time. I mean, who knows how many people out there in the office that for which I was responsible are frustrated by something that I had the power to change. And so I did make it routine. And I found that 
easing people's workaday stress is very often surprisingly simple because the sources of that stress are routine circumstances that can be adjusted. But, you know, that's the kind of mechanical, managerial answer to what you asked. I think the primary thing that we need to provide people with in the daily execution of their jobs is a sense of purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. I guess that's two primary things, mm-hmm. but they're related. The difference between going to a job that you believe is making the world a better place and going to a job that you believe is making some rich people richer is a quantitative difference in experience. It is infinitely more rewarding. It changes one's brain chemistry in profound ways when you believe your work is meaningful and when you care for the people you work with. And we've expended very little effort as industrialists on providing that opportunity. It's not expensive. It's not complicated. Make your business a business that does good and then make sure your colleagues are aware that your business has a priority system and that it is designed to improve life for human beings and hopefully other living things and that everyone is asked to execute their jobs in ways that do improve life and to come up with new ideas for improving the world. Any business can do this. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. And if you do make a public statement that yours is a business that's focused on doing good in the world, in my opinion, your business will be more efficient tomorrow because people will care more about their work, because better people will seek you out and wish to work for you, because the people who work for you will um, come earlier, stay later, and steal less because they are part of a conscientious exercise and that changes how people behave. Yeah, well, and you're going to get a lot more quality work out of them because you talk about changing brain chemistry. So if you're engaged and activated because you believe in what you're doing, then what you're going to bring to the table, you're empowered to bring a lot more to the table than you ever could in a scenario where you're just making money for the owners exactly so and and that just kind of inherently creates purpose and meaning so could you share with us some examples of where you've seen that in action oh gosh you know there are thousands of businesses that have demonstrated this in myriad ways i think One business I just love is a business called Cooperative Home Care Associates. It's uh, based in the South Bronx, provides home health care in that impoverished part of New York City. It is an employee-owned cooperative. It is a for-profit business that has made a profit and paid dividends to its employee owners 28 out of the last 30 years or something like that. If you visit, it's a sunlit office high in an office building in the South Bronx. It's full of laughter. The people there are 
quite obviously engaged in their jobs in positive ways. It's a lovely environment. I'd love to talk about cooperative home care because providing home health care might be the toughest business in the world in every way. You have you can you can only pay your employees a relatively low wage because you are constrained by the bureaucracy that sets pricing for those services. You have incredible liabilities. Um, you are sending people into the homes of sick people where things can go wrong and you have to maintain high quality relationships with profoundly stressed people in the darkest days of their lives and you are constrained by the by the insurers and the bureaucracy from spending more time from charging more money all of those variables that would make the business a little easier to run or out of your hands in that in that in that industry and yet here's an, a manifestly successful company that's been successful for decades doing that and i believe that they are so successful because idealism is woven into their identity as a business. They set out to be employee-owned for idealistic reasons. They got into home health care for idealistic reasons. They train their employees twice as long as the industry average for idealistic reasons. But then their turnover rate is a tiny fraction of the turnover rate in their competitors' businesses. And the quality of their employee, because of both training and longevity, is arguably orders of magnitude greater than their competitors in that business. And so I think it's a great illustration of how idealism has fundamentally created a business of a higher quality in every way. It's a higher quality business in terms of how it treats its employees, it's a higher quality business in terms of the consistency of its profits. It's a higher quality business in terms of the outcomes for its clients. That's so encouraging. That's fantastic. Do you have another one or two you could share? Well, there's more famous companies. Well, Ben and Jerry's great example. You know, the ice cream business, highly competitive business. It's a business driven by marketing. But at the core of Ben and Jerry's marketing is the company's identity. And it's an activist identity, it's an idealistic identity, it's a whimsical identity. And people just feel good about eating Ben and Jerry's product. Because they have a sense that by buying Ben and Jerry's, some you know, they're creating something good in the world. And besides the fact it has you know, it has a fun package and a fun name, and eating ice cream is fun. And so the combination of Activism, idealism, and fun is irresistible. And I, I'm sure that um, Justine Solheim, who is the CEO of Ben & Jerry's, well, I, I've heard him say many times, there is no Ben & Jerry's without this spirit. There is no Ben & Jerry's without this identity. There's no Ben & Jerry's without activism. There's no Ben & Jerry's without idealism. You take any of that away, 
and we no longer have a viable product because our identity, our idealism is intrinsic to the product. And so we have to do all that stuff really well because it is our primary point of differentiation. And how exciting is that, right? So how does that translate into what it's like to be an employee there in production, for instance? Well, they seem to have a very good time. I mean, I've visited them on several occasions. And they, you know, one, they have, they have policies that, that for treating their employees better than other businesses treat their employees. Ben & Jerry's goes farther in that they almost insist that their suppliers be B corporations. They push their suppliers very hard to certify as B corporations, which means that all their suppliers then have to step up and do business in a more idealistic and positive way. And, well, I think, you know, I would, I'd go to work at Ben and Jerry's in a heartbeat. I think it's going you know, to be, I think virtually any of the B corporations are among the best employers in the world. And idealism makes them that way. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a good segue into B corporations and be the change magazine. So what does that mean to be a B corporation? It means you've been certified. You've taken an assessment, an, uh, a thorough assessment that for a, a medium-sized company takes months to complete. And the assessment covers what impact your business has on the environment, what impact your business has on its employees, what impact the business has on the communities in which it operates. It takes into account virtually every aspect of practicing business and asks, could you do could you change how you do this and have a more positive impact in the world? And so it's both a certification. If you score high enough, you're certified as a B corporation. <clears throat> and it's a really valuable management tool for any business that wants to, wants to have a more positive impact. And so my company is majority owned by the nonprofit B Lab, which certifies B corporations. There are about 2,000 B corporations in the world, and they are the community from which we draw not all of our stories, but the majority of our stories. So who started B Lab? Uh, there are three founders at B Lab, the, uh, uh, Jay Cohen Gilbert, Bart Houlihan, and Andrew Kosoy, three men in their late 40s now who about 10 years ago decided to leave their their uh, careers more or less behind and devote the rest of their lives to building this change. So they've been doing this for 10 years now? About that. How many businesses have they evaluated? They have certified 2,000 businesses, but about 50,000 businesses have been evaluated. Okay. Well, that's very significant. It's just, just the consciousness raising of, of businesses going through that process, whether they got the certification or not, is, you know, giving them a new way to think about things and perhaps a new set of tools to move forward. So that's, that's very interesting. And so, yes, I think that's exactly right. Just the, the exercise is, is quite beneficial in and of itself, I think. So without going into too much detail, what are, what are kind of the essential criteria it's hard to boil that down. I mean, do you pay people 
enough so that they can buy a home in the community where you operate. What's the difference between the lowest paid and the highest paid person in your organization? And the closer those two are, the more points you get. Do you research the environmental impacts of your suppliers? So if you buy paper, is that paper certified for its environmental impact? If you buy petroleum products, are you trying to offset the carbon being generated by buying carbon offset credits or something of the kind? If you operate overseas, do you personally visit the factories you utilize? And do you audit their human resource practices? And the list goes on and on. There's virtually no aspect of business that isn't covered by the assessment. So do you have examples or stories where there's been sort of transformations in companies as a result of going through this process? Every company is transformed by going through the process. My previous company was a B Corporation for six years before I left it. And so I went through the assessment three times myself. And just in the act of answering the questions in the assessment, you are one is compelled to change the way one does business. And so, you know, has any has has some selfish draconian business been transformed by the act of taking the assessment? Well, probably not, because if you're practicing business in the old-fashioned, selfish way, you know better than to take the assessment. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Well, and I would imagine you guys were somewhat relatively conscious of, of what you were doing before you started. So is there, are there some key lessons that really stood out to you as you did? Oh, we, we were. I thought we were incredibly conscientious. And then I took the assessment and was both disappointed and uh, a little bit frustrated that I didn't do better than, we didn't do better than we did. There were a number of ways in which we could have could improve, and um, you know, I, I felt uh, a little embarrassed by the outcome. So, what are some of the key things that you uh, changed? Oh, it runs the gamut. You know, providing days for employees to do volunteer work in the community and get paid. You know, why not? Mm -hmm. It's good for the community, and it gives the employee a little diversity in their experience, and they get a kick out of it. Take a look at how much water and energy your facilities are using. Should you, Could you use lower-impact toilets and hand dryers? Are you buying things in your own community that are available rather than shipping them all the way across the country? And the list goes on and on. Hmm. There's no aspect of the business where there wasn't room for improvement. And the assessment does a good job of pointing you at that potential. So um, tell me about Be The Change magazine. How did it come about? What are you guys doing now? Where do you see it going? Well, Jay Cohen Gilbert and I served on a nonprofit board together a long time ago. He's the, one of the founders of B-Lab. And so I'd been familiar with what they were doing for a very long time and friends with Jay. And he'd been he'd been talking to me for years about the need for voices in the media that described the potential for business to do good. And I certainly agreed with that potential. And a couple of years ago, it seemed like the right time to give it a whirl. So 
we got together and raised a couple million dollars and we're giving it a whirl. So you're telling these stories of all these companies that are doing business in this way. That's the that's the mission, mission. Right? Okay. in a nutshell. Yeah. What what else can you tell me about that? What's it been like? Create so you're creating you're trying to accomplish this mission, but you're also creating a new B corporation. Um, was it easier to start from the ground up to create that environment than than change uh, what you were doing in Mother Earth News? Well, it was easy to you know to get the cultural stuff right and to pay people the right way and to provide the benefits and you know starting from scratch you get to set the floor much higher and that part was easy Mm -hmm. the media business is in general not an easy business these days right it is changing very rapidly hey there are no well-established business models anymore every business every every business's model has to be created from scratch through iteration and so Definitely starting a media business in the world today is very challenging, and I've certainly found it more challenging than any of the other media businesses I've run over the years, even you know, uh, even those that were profoundly troubled. The turnarounds are easier than starting something new in a category that no one recognizes with a brand that no one's heard of before. All that makes it a, a very substantial challenge. Well, it's... New adventure, huh? <laughs> it's an adventure, and you know I relish it, and I feel very grateful for the opportunity, but I don't find it easy. Well, I think we're probably kind of getting towards the end of the t- our time together. Um, you know, one thing I'd like to c- talk about a little bit more. You know, Scott and I have had a lot of conversations about um, right livelihood, finding work that's meaningful, and not only meaningful as far as caring for the earth and caring for people, but also meaningful in the sense of using your gifting and that kind of thing. And that's a, that's a difficult thing to find. Sometimes Uh, there's a lot of people that are becoming, um, more aware and conscious of these issues, you know, of whole systems thinking of, you know, real sustainable agriculture, uh, and work in environments and companies and industries that they just really don't believe in, but don't really know what to do. Um, do you have any thoughts on that or any advice on how people can can move into right livelihood, more meaningful work? Because it's not always easy to necessarily find a B corporation. I don't know that I know of that many necessarily in Kansas City where I am. Off the top of my head, I could look into it maybe and find them, but I, nothing comes to mind out of the companies that I'm aware, aware of that are the major employers in the city. No, there are very few. I would say a couple of things about that. I, I, one, I would say... Take a look at your closet and your pantry. Are you buying products from companies that represent your values? Because, of course, that's the best way to being familiar with them. It's a great first step toward working for one of them, with one of them, or replicating their model in another industry, for instance. Mm -hmm. If you're not engaged with companies that are doing this kind of work, then you're not building your knowledge base and you're not cultivating that energy. And cultivating that energy, I think, is fundamental to this. One other thing I believe emphatically is that every anybody's job can be done in the right way, in a conscious way. There is no job that cannot be done with a higher level of consciousness. And there is no job that can't deliver more meaning to the person doing it if they do it in a more mindful way. 
I mean, the old Zen adage is chop wood, carry water. And many spiritual practices engage us in simple tasks and remind us to do them as conscientiously and mindfully as we can. And I would suggest that anyone's job offers that opportunity and anyone's network of business relationships offers the opportunity of spreading that consciousness around. So I think every single person has that path open to right livelihood. And then, you know, the question of if you need to find a job, how do you find an employer that shows your values? Well, I'd say ask him in the job interview. Does this company care about the environment? Does it care about the regenerative economy? Does it care about human rights and the quality of life of its employees? Tell me about your company's value system. And you may not get the job, but you won't get the wrong job. And so, you know, it's, it can feel risky. On the other hand, it may lead you to a much more deeply fulfilling job. Any final thoughts you want to leave us with as we wrap up today? I don't think so, David. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for taking the time to spend with me, and thanks for letting me talk about stuff that matters to me. I, I appreciate that. And that was Brian Welch of Be The Change Media. Find out more about him at bethechange.com. That's the letter B, thechange.com, or by the link in the show notes. If you'd like to find out more about David and what he's doing in the world, you can find him at ecothinkit.com, and again, by a link in the resource section. Now, here's where I have to admit that I have a friend in the permaculture community who works for B-Lab, and I did not know that this interview with Brian was coming from David until he sent it to me one day. But as a result of those conversations, I'm very interested in future projects that come from the work that the team and I are doing behind the scenes, beyond the podcast, to take the form of a B Corporation cooperative. After hearing this conversation, if you're running a business, is this something that interests you to learn more about and possibly converting your company to this kind of a structure? If you're just starting out as a B Corporation appealing for how you would want to organize, Are you ready to take the assessment and see if your organization can be certified as a B Corporation? I'd like to know your thoughts on that and everything else that you heard today, because I in some ways agree with what Brian said about business being one of the most powerful forces that we have right now for change, and I'm interested in how we can continue to use that and everything that we already know in order to create what we want to see in the world. So get in touch with me, 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or of course, you can always drop a letter in the post, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Till the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.